Welcome to the Exponential View podcast. My name is Azim Azar and I'm the curator of Exponential View. Please take time to sign up to our newsletter. It's on www.exponentialview.co. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram. The handle is at Exponential View. And sharing is caring. So if you do like the podcast, please take a moment to send it to a few friends. Today, I talk with Dr. Yuval Noah Harari. Yuval is one of today's most important thinkers. In his 2014 book, Sapiens, A Magisterial History of Humanity, he asks us to question notions of human exceptionalism. His new book, Homo Deus, asks what happens to us now. Science has helped us conquer famine, plague and war, enriched us and allow us to dominate the planet. But new technologies based around artificial intelligence and genetic engineering are resulting in a new dynamic, a rapid progress that may herald the passing of Homo sapiens. Algorithms may know us better than we know ourselves. If that is the case, what will happen to society, politics and daily life? I do recommend picking up a copy of Homo Deus. It's available in the UK now and in the United States from February. You'll be able to find a link to it in our newsletter. Well, hello. It's uh, great to be here. And uh, I'm very excited to have with us today uh, one of my favourite authors, and I think one of the most important thinkers uh, of the moment, uh, Dr. Yuval Noah Harari. Uh, good morning, Yuval. Good morning. So uh, tell, tell me, I'm sitting in London today. Uh, where do we find you uh, this morning? Uh, in Israel, at my home in a small village about midway between Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. So you've, you've found yourself uh, quite far away from the throbbing heart of uh, modern techno-capitalism. Uh, techno Is that a deliberate choice? Uh, I was simply born here, uh, and it's not easy to, to take your life elsewhere with all the friends and family and, and, and so forth. And I think it does give you and uh, does give me um, somewhat of an unusual perspective on what's happening in the world. And uh, as somebody who is very interested in technology and uh, artificial intelligence and bioengineering and so forth, it's, I think it's interesting to look at it from the Middle East and not just from Silicon Valley. Yes, I think it has given you a, a unique perspective, and it certainly comes through when you read Homo Deus. But tell me, how did you come to the conclusions that you do in the new book? Well, I mean, it started with my previous book, uh, Sapiens, which discussed uh, the human past. And um, I think that uh, as, as we look at the human past and at, at, at past human achievements, what impressed me most as a historian is the fact that over the last few decades, humans have managed to acquire almost divine abilities um, and do things that previously people thought only the gods can do, and in particular to overcome the three... Uh, biggest problems that mm -hmm. humans in all civilizations have faced for thousands of years, which are famine, plague, and war. Over the last few decades, we, obviously we did not abolish them completely, but we turned them from uncontrollable forces of nature that maybe just a miracle from God can stop into uh, manageable challenges that we know how to rein in and how to overcome. We don't always do it, but at least we know how to do it. And um, I think maybe famine is, is the best example of all. For thousands of years, all humans in all cultures lived in the shadow of famine. You needed just uh, some bad weather, some flooding or drought, and maybe 5% or 10% of the population will starve to death. And over the last few decades, Thanks to advances in, in technology and economics and, and politics, we've really abolished natural famine from the world. Um, if people today still die from, from starvation, it's only for political reasons. There is no problem of providing enough cheap food for mm -hmm. everybody on the planet. If people in, in a place like Syria or North Korea still starve to death, it's only because some politician or government wants them to starve to death. Um, so the, the question that arises then is what will we do with all our immense new powers in the 21st century if we indeed manage to bring under, under our, our control the traditional menaces of, of, of humankind and if we are uh, gathering even 
most spectacular uh, powers in the 21st century, what are we going to do with them? Right. So we've moved from a world of being scared of many of our natural forces uh, 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 into a world where we seem to be able to control them and, and have a, a, a sense of abundance. I think I, I saw that the World Fruit, Food Programme estimates that 2,800 calories of food is produced per person per day around the world, which is well above the maintenance level uh, that a human human needs. So we've cracked, as you say, that, that the famine problem. And that seems in your book to leave us with this question of, of now what? And can you just describe the, the, the parallel process of the development of um, our own sense of uh, belief, the things we believe in and the things that are the sources of power that has gone on in parallel with our overcoming these, in particular, these three forces? In parallel with the technological development, we've also gained a lot of self-confidence in our ability to basically solve any problem at all. Uh, I think the basic idea at the uh, underlining science in modern society that there is no such thing as an, as an uh, impossible problem, uh, the only limit to our abilities is set by our own ignorance. And if we gather more knowledge, uh, we can translate this new knowledge into new power and solve even problems which traditionally were thought to be uh, beyond human control. Uh, famine is, is, is one example, but there are many other examples. Perhaps the most important example today is the old age and death. Uh, if for thousands of years people thought that uh, death was um, the divine destiny set by the gods to humans, and nothing humans do can change that. So now, more and more in places like Silicon Valley, uh, people think that, no, death is not the divine destiny of humanity. Death is just a technical problem. <laughs> and uh, given enough time and energy and money, we can crack even the problem of death and uh, extend human life indefinitely. We don't need to wait. I mean, previously in, in, in ancient mythologies, the idea was that maybe someday the Messiah will come or Christ will return to earth or God will perform some miracle and uh, we will overcome death. But now the, um, the scientists and the engineers are saying, no, we don't need to wait for the second coming of Christ. A couple of geeks in the laboratory can solve it if you give them enough uh, time and money. Now, I'm not sure that they are correct, but it's amazing to realize that the greater and greater uh, segment of the uh, business elite and the intellectual elite of the world now sees immortality as something which is within human reach. Mm. And you can say in more general terms that in places like Silicon Valley, if equality is out, immortality is certainly in. Uh, that's, very, that's very true. I mean, we're starting to hear about the, the startup that will sell, uh, sell young blood uh, for $8,000 uh, because I think having blood transfusions from someone younger than you can, can extend some of your, uh, your you know, underlying themes. So this idea that, uh, that immortality is a problem that you can achieve is, is definitely getting vogue in Silicon Valley. Uh, but I wonder whether how different is it to our quest for the fountain of youth that pervades many, many cultures of, in history? Well, I mean, the thing is that the aim is the same, the dream is the same, but the means are completely different. We, what we see today in places like Silicon Valley is that things that previously belonged to the realm of mythology are now being transferred to the realm of technology. And the engineers are taking over from the priests and the rabbis and the shamans. Mm -hmm. um, I would therefore say that uh, we are really witnessing the rise of techno-religions, mm -hmm. movements that make all the traditional religious promises, but they promise to accomplish them not with the aid of supernatural beings living in the sky, Mm -hmm. but with the aid of technology. 
They say we can we can we can give you happiness, we can give you justice, we can give you even immortality, but not after you die in paradise here on earth with the help of technology. Now of course even this is not completely new. Mm-hmm. There was one very influential techno religion uh in in the 19th and 20th century and it was called socialism or marxism mm-hmm. i think there is a very interesting link between marxism and what's happening now in silicon valley now i don't think that mark zuckerberg is a communist or something <laughs> like that it's just that marx and his followers they also promised to establish paradise on earth with the help of technology They were enamored with the technology of the Industrial Revolution. With steam engines and electricity and trains, we'll create paradise on Earth. And, you know, I think it was Lenin who was once asked uh, to define communism in, in a single sentence. And he said that communism is power to the workers' councils plus electrification of the whole country. And really, without electricity, without trains and radio, there can be no communist regime. You couldn't establish a communist regime before the Industrial Revolution. So what we see now in, in Silicon Valley mm-hmm. is maybe the second generation of techno-religions that make even more um, uh, spectacular promises than communism, and, but they base them not on steam engines, And electricity, they now promise salvation through algorithms and genetic engineering right and is there a, there is a similar uh, similarity between what ha- what happens within communism with this idea of being able to manage all the information in a society and an economy and therefore deliver a perfect production productive capacity at the right time and there seems to be a parallel between that and the algorithmically controlled uh, economy and algorithmically controlled culture that you talk about towards the end of the uh, of the book yes communism was really based on the idea of central processing of information if, 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 if you want to transform Russia say into a communist country it means that all the decisions are being taken centrally in one place um, and for that you need to To concentrate all the information in one place you need to bring the information from Moscow and Leningrad and Odessa and Kiev and all the other places in the Soviet Union to one room in Moscow where the Politburo is sitting and they will take decisions and then these decisions will influence uh, production all over the Soviet Union and and What we are seeing today is something a bit similar with, with big data, mm-hmm. the idea that if we can concentrate all the data in one system, uh, in, the, in the Amazon cloud or in the Google cloud, and then have these master algorithms, the master algorithms will serve the same function as the Politburo in the, in the old communist states. Now, of course, Everybody in Silicon Valley will, will I think will be appalled <laughs> by, by this kind of, of, of comparison, and there are huge differences between what's happening now uh, with Amazon and Facebook and what happened a uh, hundred years ago uh, in, in the Soviet Union. Um, and of course, one of the biggest differences is that um, in Silicon Valley, nobody expects humans to analyze the information. The problem with the Soviet Union was that in the end, humans can simply, are, are simply incapable of handling and analyzing uh, such amounts of information. So because the Soviet Union relied on the central processing of information, mm-hmm. and because the processors were human brains shaped in the African savannah 70,000 years ago for completely different purposes, it didn't work. And capitalism, which uh, distributes the processing of information between many, many different processors, it doesn't concentrate it in a single place, capitalism worked much better. But now, with the rise of artificial intelligence and big data algorithms, the idea is if we replace uh, the old, old-fashioned human brains with the new algorithms, Uh, or the big data algorithms, they can do the job that Lenin and Stalin and Khrushchev were unable to do. 
Right. And so if we look at that process, it's very interesting because capitalism was this distributed uh, or is this distributed information processing system, but we had imperfect knowledge. And in that knowledge were inventories building up and frictions and places for humans to uh, participate in decision making and, and judgment. And what we've done, especially with the rise of, of IT over the last 20 or 30 or 40 years is uh, we've gone off and eliminated those frictions by improving supply chains or, or applying Fordism or Toyota production systems to factories to make them more efficient, more efficient. So this process that you've described has gone on for uh, for 40 or 50 years. And, and, and I, I guess your ar argument now is that it's accelerating because we've eliminated so many of the barriers that were either technical to do with processing capacity or to do with bandwidth and connection that we're moving into a new a new phase yeah, the idea is that um, if you if you have enough data and enough computing power you can create an algorithm or a data processing system which will be able to understand even human beings Mm -hmm. much better than they are able to understand themselves. Right. And once this happens, authority shifts away mm -hmm. from individual humans to these networked algorithms. Mm -hmm. Right. And to that point, Yuval, I heard uh, Stuart Russell uh, refer to uh, the 20 trillion move game, where he described that in a human's life, on average, we take about the equivalent of 20 trillion moves. Uh, and and their their twenty trillion sounds like a lot. It sounds like it's part of a very very wide probability space to explore. But of course, a combination of algorithms and CPU means that if it's not solvable from an engineering context perspective today, the argument would be that in a hundred years' time that would be a solvable problem. And then we get exactly to this um, point that you've described, which is the algorithms can know us better than we know ourselves and they can know the interactions between us better than we could predict. Yes, and uh, you know, to, to give an, an example of something, something simple, mm. like you need, you need to choose which book to read next. Mm. So uh, in communist Russia, they try to solve this problem of how to recommend books to people <laughs> by a one-size-fits-all approach that, okay, everybody would read Lenin, everybody would read Marx, that's it. And this obviously didn't work. Uh, and therefore, you had the more humanist, liberal approach that each individual will decide for himself or herself what to read. Nobody other than you can really know what book you should read next. It's, it's completely up to the individual. What's happening now is that you have these big brother algorithms that know you so well that they don't need to rely on one size fits all. They can make recommendations just for you that will be better than what you can choose for yourself. So it starts with the Amazon algorithm that follows your previous likes and dislikes mm -hmm. and compares them with statistics about other people with similar tastes. And the Amazon algorithm tells you, okay, you would probably like to read that, that new book. But what's happening now is that with more and more biometric data coming in, you can uh, really upgrade the Amazon algorithm to an amazing degree. If you, for example, if you use Kindle, so already today, while you read the book, the book is reading you, mm -hmm. and Kindle or Amazon knows which pages you read fast, which pages you read slow, uh, when you stop reading a book, and it, this gives you a much better idea of your likes and dislikes. The next stage is to connect Kindle with face recognition software, mm -hmm. and then Kindle will know when you laugh, when you cry, when you're angry. And the final step is to connect Kindle with biometric sensors on or inside your body, and then Kindle will know the exact emotional impact of every sentence you're reading. You read a sentence and Amazon knows what it did to your blood pressure or to your brain activity. By the time you finish the book, you forget most of it, but Amazon will not forget anything and it will know exactly 
what is your personality type, what is your current mood, and how to press your emotional buttons. And with this kind of understanding, which is not, you know, a hundred years from now, it's 10 years from now, it will be able to make choices for you, not just about books, mm-hmm. but about, about much more important issues. So I think what we are really seeing today, and we'll see more and more in the coming years, is, um, is this um, breaking of the barrier between biotech and infotech. Mm-hmm. And you see that more and more companies that started as, as, as infotech are becoming also biotech companies. And the most important source of data will be from within the human body. So if until today we thought mainly in terms of hacking computers, uh, what we'll see is uh, these corporations and governments and, and so forth hacking human beings. And they'll know exactly who you are. And based on that, they could make decisions centrally about each individual, which is something, you know, what was beyond the wildest dream of Lenin or Stalin or, or, or Marx. Mm. When you describe this, I think a lot of people feel uh, they get a sense of discomfort from, uh, from, from this uh, vision. Um, is that discomfort that we feel any different to the discomfort that somebody might have felt in the 15th or 16th century with the arrival of uh, greater beliefs in uh, the process of uh, this new process of science or uh, the notions of heliocentricity? Uh, people seem to feel quite discom- get quite a lot of discomfort then and of course, there were some, uh, you know, outcomes that, that occurred then. But is our sense of discomfort any different today? Well, on the one hand, no. Every major uh, technological or scientific revolution creates a lot of change. And at least beyond, after a certain age, people don't like change very much. Um, I think if, if we speak with people who are like teenagers or children, they are often very excited about something that makes people in their 40s or 50s feel uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think there is something deeper going on, and this is that in all previous revolutions, there was always something inside human beings which was was beyond the reach of the revolution. Yes, uh, with Copernicus, maybe we get a better understanding of, of, of the universe and the solar system or whatever, but still, the human being itself remains as a kind of mysterious black box. And inside us, there is this soul or, 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 or spirit or whatever, which is beyond the reach of, of, of the scientists and, and the engineers. And what you saw for, for centuries is that as science deciphers more and more of the big riddles of the universe, the power of the individual human and the authority of the individual human only increased. What we'll see probably in the next few decades, which is something very new and and frightening, Mm -hmm. is that finally science has a serious chance of cracking the riddle of humanity itself. Mm -hmm. And if this succeeds, thanks to all the new biometric data and computing power, then this will be the end of the individual, of the human individual as we've known it for for the last few centuries. And it will be a a kind of revolution which goes far beyond anything we saw in in the last few centuries. You described it as as frightening. Uh, And I think a lot of people feel, as I said, they do feel a sense of discomfort when they read of about dataism, uh, as as you call it. Uh, I, I see parallels, though, in some of the ideas that you bring out in your first book, Sapiens, where you really take aim at the at the idea of human exceptionalism uh, and this notion that um, that we are somehow different from the apes or the dolphins or the the octopuses. Uh, to to what extent is this sense of this fear, really us 
trying to maintain our sense of exceptionalism? Oh, it's it's very closely connected to that. Um, I think it's it's not a coincidence that from all the scientific theories, the one that arise, that causes the greatest um, anger and opposition is Darwin's theory of evolution. It's not because it's a very complicated theory. Actually, compared to most other uh, dominant scientific theory of our era, the theory of evolution is one of the simplest ones. Uh, quantum mechanics is infinitely more complicated, and it contradicts our common sense to a much larger degree. Yet I never hear about religious fundamentalists objecting to teaching quantum mechanics to, to kids. Maybe the kids object, but you never hear any objections from the, from the uh, fundamentalists or from, from this or that political party. Uh, I think the reason why, even in the U.S., most people still refuse to accept the theory of evolution, at least with regard to humans, is because of human exceptionalism. We don't want to admit that we are basically just another animal, and certainly we don't want to give up the traditional religious views about soul and afterlife and heaven. If you really understand Darwin, what it means is that there is no soul, and there is no afterlife, and there is no heaven. It doesn't, you, you can't square that with uh, evolution by natural selection. The soul is not something that can evolve by natural selection. Uh, and therefore, it, 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 it causes so much uh, objection. And I think the processes like dataism, like an algorithm that is able to understand my deepest opinions and desires and yearnings better than I can understand them, it threatens people from exactly the same direction. Yeah, and, and I can understand I can understand why people uh, feel feel threatened. I wonder whether we have been selective with our uh, with our with our memories. So you you describe this process where the algorithm knows you better than you know your yourself. But in a way, for many many for much of recorded history and even pre-recorded history, for many humans, there were systems that professed to know them better than they know themselves. The sort of learned helplessness of uh, the, the serf who simply believed in his position relative to his feudal lord, uh, the, the, the people who you know, believed in, uh, that their position in the caste was where it was and nothing would, would change it. So it seems to be a, a common pattern in human uh, history that, that there are powers that profess to know us better than we know themselves. And in some cases, perhaps my subject ex subjective experience as that serf or that pharaonic worker um, was that my self-awareness as to what my intentions were or what my capability was were absolutely capped by the belief systems around me. I mean, we can't get inside those heads, but do you think that there is some, some parallel there? Yes, definitely. Uh, I think that looking at the, at the, um, at the long view of thousands and, and, and hundreds of years, for much of history, many people lived their lives convinced that external powers understand them better than they understand themselves, and which is why they, they invested authority in these external powers. Uh, these external powers could be supernatural, like gods, or they could be other humans or human institutions, like the Pope, the Church, the Pharaoh, the Emperor, and so forth. There is certainly nothing new about that. However, over the last three, four hundred years, especially in the West, uh, people changed their view of the world. The big revolution of the modern age, the humanist revolution, uh, shifted authority from outside into the individual. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the lesson we are being taught from very early childhood, again and again and again, is nobody can really understand you better than you under understand yourself. Mm -hmm. Therefore, you are the ultimate source of authority in your life. There is no place for any big brother, 
for any pope, for any king to tell you what to do. In the political sphere, we believe that the voter knows best. Nobody knows better than the voter what to do. In the economic sphere, we believe that the customer is always right. There is no authority higher than the desires of the individual customer. In the field of art, we believe that beauty is in the eyes of the beholder. Uh, in education, we, had, we teach children to think for themselves. Don't just copy whatever your teacher says. No, you have to learn to think for yourself. So this all goes to, 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 uh, back to the idea that uh, I am the highest authority. Mm. And nobody can really understand what I feel, what I think, what I need. Mm. And this is now being threatened. Um, so it's not unprecedented in, in history, but what we might see is a return to something similar uh, to previous civilizations and cultures when authority shifts away from the individual to some powerful entity outside that makes decisions for us. So wh whereas my grandmother uh, might have prayed before she took a significant decision, and my mother might have prayed to uh, before she took a significant decision, now we might say, uh, well, just look it up on Google. You know, we don't know where to go for our vacation or we don't know which university our child should attend. Let's check the rankings uh, on the, the, the uh, university uh, review page or on TripAdvisor. And all of these are algorithmically determined and they become our, our higher power. Is that, is that part of the parallel that you're exploring? Yes, but, but, but go even further. When you yeah. check the, 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 the listing of the universities, it's still old-fashioned because, it's, again, it's a one-size-fits-all. Okay, everybody wants to go to Harvard or Princeton or whatever. But what we're talking about now is that you, you won't check the general list of, of university. You will turn to Google or to, to Alexa, Alexa, and you will say, Hey, Alexa, based on everything you know about me and the world, where should I go to study? And Alexa or Cortana or Google or whatever uh, will, will tell us where I personally, individually should go, which might be a very different answer from the answer that they give you. Yeah, ab absolutely. Absolutely. And, and so this abdication of, uh, of responsibility um, is... Uh, is something that again can, puts power into the hands, and we're probably starting to see it of half a dozen, uh, potentially half a dozen new gods, right? These these in, these new intersubjective uh, organizations of uh, you know Amazon, Google, uh, uh, Apple in in the West, and uh, you know a handful of other company companies in other um, places. Now those companies are still made of people and you you explore this idea in the, this notion of datism of there being two types of people who who emerge uh, you you talk about the sort of upgraded superhumans and you talk about and i think you deliberately provocatively call them the useless class um, yes. and and what's interesting of course is that the silicon valley which is the home to so many of these companies is also the home of the the superhumans, the new, the new immortals. Would you just yeah. just describe that um, idea within within dataism and what you think the implications are? Well, when you talk about the superhumans, the idea is that the, you use new technologies, especially biotechnology, but also with help from artificial intelligence in order to process all the all the relevant data. Uh, you use biotechnology to to start upgrading the human body, the human brain, to start combining organic and bionic parts in order to create uh, cyborgs. I think that it's, it's a good guess that the most important products of the 21st century economy will be bodies and brains and minds. Uh, we are beyond manufacturing cars and, and vehicles and weapons. We are really into the business of manufacturing bodies and brains and minds. And uh, as you learn how to engineer and manufacture them, you could use it for the first time in history to translate economic inequality into real biological inequality. Mm -hmm. Now, throughout history, the upper castes always imagined 
that they are uh, superior to everybody else, they are smarter, they are more hardworking, more creative, whatever. And as far as we know today, this wasn't true. There was no real difference in basic abilities between the king and the peasant. It was just mythology. Mm -hmm. But in the 21st century, uh, we might see uh, economic inequality being translated into real difference in ability. And once this begins to happen, it will be almost impossible to close the gap. It will be like, you know, like a, like a, uh, a snowball that just, just the gap will just keep growing all the time. Right. And it, you, the gap will keep going, growing even if, as uh, many in the tech industry will say, well, the products always get cheaper. Because of Moore's law and Keck's law and Crider's law yeah. and all these other laws, Definitely. the products get cheaper. But but your, your argument is that it's the, the people at the top, the supernaturals, are accelerating away even as others struggle to catch up. So one thing is that there will always be something new. Mm -hmm. If something becomes so cheap and ubiquitous that everybody has it, so everybody wants the, the next upgrade. Um, and we are talking here about the, 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 the relative... Uh, uh, relative position, not an absolute position. In absolute terms, it's likely that even poor people will enjoy better abilities and better health in 50 years. But the gap between them and the rich will still be much bigger than it is today. Another problem we need to take into account is that many people who talk about, yes, uh, the things will, it will become cheaper and everybody will enjoy it, they are thinking in 20th century terms in terms of uh, the massive healthcare systems that governments built and financed in the 20th century. But what we forget is that there was a reason why governments in the 20th century, even in dictatorial countries like Nazi Germany or the Soviet Union, built these massive healthcare systems and provided uh, basic healthcare for everybody, including the poor. And the reason was that they needed the poor. Even Hitler knew that if he wanted Germany to be a strong nation with a strong army and a strong economy, he needed millions of poor Germans to serve as soldiers in the Wehrmacht and to mm -hmm. serve as uh, workers in the factories. Now, this may change in the 21st century. With the rise of artificial intelligence and machine learning and so forth, we may see the creation of a massive new class of useless people, people who just can't do anything that is economically or militarily valuable. Uh, actually, in the military sphere, it already happened. Mm -hmm. Most people today are militarily useless. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the 20th century, the best armies in the world relied on recruiting millions of common soldiers. Uh, today, the best armies rely on sm much smaller numbers of uh, elite units and more and more unsophisticated technology like uh, drones and cyber warfare and, and so forth, most people, you don't have anything to do with them in the army. And the army is usually, I don't know, 20, 30 years ahead of the mm -hmm. civilian economy. If the same thing happens in the civilian economy, then by 2050, you will have this massive useless class of hundreds of millions of people and the, the state, the elite, will no longer have any incentive to invest in their health. Maybe in a country like, I don't know, Sweden, the, uh, the traditions of the welfare state will be so strong that the Swedish state will continue to take care of everybody, even if they are economically valueless. Mm -hmm. But if you think about the huge developing countries, like Nigeria, South Africa, Mexico, India, Brazil, in these countries, the temptation of the state and the elite to simply wash their hands off the useless masses will be very high. Right. And so you'll get to this que uh, question about how do you go about uh, pacifying them? Uh, and and do you, do you, can you con contain them and constrain them? And what strategies can we use to do that? Can we use virtual reality? Can we use video games? Can we use opioids uh, in order to uh, keep their, their dissatisfaction away from where it might interrupt the system? Or are they 
is the system now so autonomous that we don't even need to worry about those sort of technologies of, of maintenance and pacification? Nobody really knows. We don't have any experience with such a situation and we don't have any economic or, or political model for dealing with such a situation. All the models we've inherited from past centuries, including both liberalism and socialism, they are really irrelevant to the kind of situation we are talking about here. So we'll probably need to explore completely new models uh, when it comes to keeping the masses relatively satisfied and avoiding uh, you know, massive unrest. So, uh, so there are two issues. First is how to provide them with basic necessities like food and shelter. And this should be easy given the immense cap capabilities of the new technologies. What is likely to be far more difficult is to give them meaning in life and also um, to give them a sense of accomplishment. And here, one of the possibilities that people talk about is, again, relying on the new technologies and basically relying on drugs and computer games to keep the masses uh, employed and, and, and satisfied. Uh, people will spend more and more of their time regulated by, uh, by, by uh, artificial biochemistry and uh, spend more and more of their, of their time engaged with artificial virtual realities, which will provide them with far more interest and far more emotional attachment than anything in the real world outside. And actually, this is not a completely new idea you can make, I think, a very convincing argument that this has been happening mm. for thousands of years with what we call religions. Religions are virtual realities with old-fashioned technology. Uh, you don't have computers in the Middle Ages. You don't have smartphones and, and 3D uh, uh, virtual reality. But you do have the human imagination. And people spend their lives and find satisfaction in gaining points in an imaginary game, and they believe that if they gain enough points, they will move on to the next level after they die. And this has kept millions of people uh, relatively satisfied and happy for thousands of years. So uh, even that is not a completely new new idea. It's not, and it parallels an, another idea. So, you, you know, you make the point that intelligence is being solved and uh, consciousness isn't necessarily being being solved they're non-conscious and many of these entities uh, and, and it also seems to be that what seems to be left is our own subjective experience uh, that that is the piece that the uh, the algorithms can't necessarily reach and so these tools these um, biopharmaceuticals and these IT pharmaceuticals leave us with relying on whatever value or virtue we find in our own subjective experience. Yeah, the, the subjective experience and, and consciousness and the mind are kind of the last frontier. It's the one thing we still don't understand. With all our growing understanding of the brain, we have absolutely no idea how the brain um, creates or gives rise to the mind. Uh, nobody has uh, the flimsiest theory to explain how is it that when millions of neurons fire in a particular pattern, um, you feel love, and when millions of neurons fire in a, in a different pattern, you feel anger. How is it exactly that mm. uh, an electrochemical signals are being translated into subjective experiences? This is known as the hard problem of consciousness, and at least as of January 2017, we are still very far mm. from solving this problem. And one of the dangers when we look ahead is that we can gain very impressive abilities to manipulate the world inside us. But if we don't understand consciousness and the mind, we may make terrible mistakes uh, using these new powers. Uh, you can say that previously, for the last thousands of years, humans gained the ability to manipulate the world outside them, but because they didn't understand 
the uh, delicate balance of the ecological system, what they did was to completely unbalance the system, and today we face ecological meltdown as a result. The same thing may happen in the 21st century with the world inside us. We gain the ability to manipulate our, our bodies, our brains, our hormones, our, and so forth, but we don't understand the internal mental ecosystem. So the result may be that we will completely destabilize and un unbalance the internal uh, ecosystem in the same way that we unbalance the external ecosystem. You've just raised the, the hard problem. Let's look at some things that are a little bit more proximate. Uh, from your framework, uh, where does uh, Donald Trump, who will be inaugurated as president a few hours after this recording, uh, fit into the picture? I think it represents um, the breakdown of the traditional models we've inherited from the 20th century. I think it represents a growing realization among the voters that the political system no longer empowers them, that they are losing control of the world, and they don't really know who is in charge and where power is located today. Now, I think they are correct in diagnosing the problem. I think that, yes, the voters are losing their, uh, their power, and the political system no longer gives us any meaningful future uh, visions about the human future, they are wrong in thinking that the answer is Trump and that by putting Donald Trump in the White House, somehow the power will go back uh, to the ordinary voters. This is not going to happen. So I think that this is just the beginning of the crisis and not, not the, like its, uh, its, its peak. Right. So, so Donald Trump is an answer, but not the correct answer. What do you think the correct answer looks like? Nobody has any idea. Um, the, the, the problem, again, I think it basically goes back to, to data, that the amount of data that you need to analyze today in the world in order to just understand what's happening, let alone where we will be in 20 or 30 years, are beyond the capacity of human beings and human institutions, uh, which is why nobody today in the political system has any meaningful vision about where humankind will be, let's say, in 30 years. We started this, this talk with, with Lenin and the communists and Marx, so we can say another thing about them, that whatever you say about it, whatever accusation you can make against Lenin, you cannot accuse him of lacking vision. People in the early 20th century, both on the left and on the right, had really amazing visions. Uh, about the future of humankind, amazing not in the sense that they are good, but in the breadth of, mm. of, of, of their thinking and their vision. Mm. But would, wouldn't you they, argue? Sorry, sorry. Yeah. To, wouldn't you argue that, say, Ray Kurzweil has uh, an amazing and ambitious vision, whether it's good or bad? It's it, exactly. I think that the only place today you hear visions of the kind that a century ago you heard from political parties is in Silicon Valley. Uh, this is, again, a parallel between Lenin and Kurzweil or Lenin and Zuckerberg. This is where you now hear the visions. But when you look at the political uh, system, nobody on the right or on the left has anything remotely close to the kind of grand visions about the future that a century ago you heard from people like Lenin and like Roosevelt and like Mao and like Hitler. And which is really surprising because with the kind of technology we have today, you could have expected politicians to be much more ambitious, but they aren't. If you it's not just democracy, it's also dictatorships. If you compare Putin with Lenin, Lenin dreamt about creating an entire new world. Putin is basically dreaming about going back to the Tsarist empire before Lenin. So... I think that the, the crisis is not just of the United States or of the democratic system, but there is no political system today in the world which is able to produce the kind of uh, grand visions of the future that uh, previously formed the basis 
for the political debate. Well, it, it seems like you have on the one hand the uh, Kurtzweil who talks in a sense of dematerializing humans and turning them into information uh, where they can be, you know, uh, much more. I suppose the 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 other side of, of that, the, the opposite position might be to say, if all we have left is our subjective experience and the things that we do in the day to day, perhaps we need a philosophy or a politics that reinforces that, reinforces the, 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 the value of the smile or the value of the artisanally made cheese. Is, is that, a, is that the, 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 the opposite of the, the, the technological soul? I, I, I think there is a very good case to be made for, for such, a, such an approach. The problem is that it's not scalable. At least nobody has found a way to scale it to a global level. Uh, it works in your individual life. It works in a small community. But how to go from there to managing the global financial system, this is the gap that, uh, at least as far as I know, <laughs> nobody has managed to cross. Right. And I can tell you about myself that uh, I, I spend like two hours every day doing meditation, uh, Vipassana meditation. And I, I go, my yearly vacation is to, to, to go to a long meditation retreat of uh, 30 or 60 days. I just came back a month ago hmm. from a 45 days meditation retreat. And for me, this was the best thing in life. But I just, I, I'm not, and because I know how difficult it is, I'm under no illusion that this is scalable and that we can now have 8 billion people just meditating every day and this will solve the problems of the world. It, it solves maybe my personal problem and it, I can recommend it to, to individuals who may be listening to, to this podcast very, very warmly, but I, I just don't see how I go from my personal meditation to a new political and economic model that can work on the level of billion. It's a big challenge. I agree. And I'm very grateful that we got a chance to hear your uh, in insights, uh, uh, Dr. Harari. Yuval, thank you so much for giving us your time this morning. Do you have any final thoughts to leave with our listeners? Maybe the uh, a final good thought is that technology is never deterministic. Every technology can be used for diverse purposes. If we again look back at the 19th and 20th century, so what we see is that the new technologies of the, of the Industrial Revolution, electricity and, and trains and cars and radios, they could be used to build a communist dictatorship or a fascist regime or a liberal democracy. The trains did not dictate to us what to do with them. And it's the same with the new technologies of the 21st century, whether it's artificial intelligence or bioengineering or anything else. Uh, it's not deterministic. If there is some future possibilities that you don't like, you can still do something about it. Fantastic. Listen, thank you very much. I really uh, appreciated your making the time for this. Oh, it, it was my pleasure. I think it's important stuff that uh, should should... We should make time for this. Thank you very much, Yuva. Thank you. Well, thanks for listening to the Exponential View podcast. We'll be back soon. In the meantime, do take a moment to share this podcast with some friends. Find us on Twitter or Instagram at Exponential View. Uh, and of course, don't forget to check out the weekly newsletter, which you can sign up to on www.exponentialview.co.